wealth of two sharper iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. This two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters here on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Misery Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information and Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans and by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, July 11th, we are studying Psalm 16, a prayer that speaks to the promise of Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of all who trust in him. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Tim Stork. Pastor Stork serves at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Chesterfield Township, Michigan. Pastor Stork, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Hi, Pastor Apple. It's good to be back with you. As we get started this morning, let's talk a little bit of context. It's obviously a different sort of question for the Psalms, but there is context that's helpful. What should we know as we prepare to look at the text of Psalm 16 today? So as we begin to look at Psalm 16, um, there are a couple of things for us to remember. Um, The first, of course, is um, who wrote the Psalm for us today. And as many of the Psalms were written by the hand of David or are attributed to King David. So also is Psalm 16. Um, It is called a miktom or a miktum, depending on your pronunciation, um, which comes at the very beginning. It's kind of that little preface before verse one. Um, There's a couple of different understandings of that word. It could my it could mean um, a silent prayer, but others also suggest that it refers to some sort of inscription or some type of writing that David may have actually inscribed these words in stone. Um, as David is the the great psalmist, um, that we continue to have these words of his um, reminding us of God's great love for his people. Yeah, and this is one of the Psalms of David that does get quoted in the New Testament. Peter quotes it in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, and I think St. Paul quotes it as well in the book of Acts in one of his sermons, both in re- in reference to the resurrection of Jesus, which I know we'll talk about as we get into the Psalm. So you've referenced already the superscription for us, a miktam of, of David, and then the text of Psalm 16 goes like this. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. 
You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is Psalm 16. So take us just into that first verse, Pastor Stork. David prays, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Yeah. So these opening words of David make us wonder where he's going to take us. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. As I was reading through the psalm the other day, it reminds me of the opening of several of David's other psalms that we've already gone through. For example, back in Psalm 7, David writes, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Um, And of course, in chapter 6, David writes, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. And I think when we first read that verse, we wonder, what is God preserving David from? Where's David going to to take us in this psalm? Um, Is this a psalm that David wrote when he was on the run from Saul? Um, Was this a psalm that David wrote or sang um, when something else was going on within his life? It, It really kind of gives us a preface of, you know, I think where we kind of expect David to go um, in this psalm for us today. So if we're expecting David to go in a certain direction, this you know idea of preservation, which David has prayed for previously, mm-hmm. and, and the thought of refuge in the Lord, that's certainly a very common theme in the Psalms and in many different images. David or, or other psalmists will bring up the Lord as a refuge of some sort. If we're expecting him to pray about then, say, his trouble, whatever that may be, does he take us in that direction? No, he actually doesn't. Um, he he goes in a completely a completely different direction than I think any of us expect. Especially again, if you've read the earlier Psalms, if you've been following along um, with your studies, Pastor Apple, and noticing that David, instead of complaining or you know recounting all of the things that he needs God to give him refuge from, in fact, he spends the majority of the Psalm praising God and giving thanks to God for all of the blessings that he has poured out on him. Right. I mean, the the rest of this psalm then really does, it is a prayer to the Lord, but it's not, oh, Lord, help me more than as much as it is, Lord, you have helped me, or I know you will help me. and, And here is why you are the only help I have. I mean, it really, and, and we'll see this as we as we get farther into the psalm, but it really does set up the Lord as the unique place of refuge. You know, I mean, the reason that he can pray like he does in verse one, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge, he's going to lay that out in the rest of the psalm, basically saying, here's how I know that you're the place of refuge for me. I have no other refuge. You're the only one, and I know you're going to come through on your promise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, David has, um, of course, seen and I'm sure been um, one who has tried to take refuge in other things and ultimately knows that the only one that he receives protection from, that he receives um, care and a, a place to be, is with his Lord. Mm. So in, in verse 2, 
and this is one of those places where we need to distinguish between a couple of English words or two Hebrew words that are translated the same way in English. I say to the Lord, that Lord is in all caps, you'll notice in your English translations. That would be, I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. That would be a different Hebrew word. You are my my ruler, my king, my Lord in the title sense. And then David says, I have no good apart from you. What's, what's he saying here? Well, he's basically saying that um, as the Lord, as Yahweh, um, that there is nothing um, that he lacks from him. Um, everything that David has comes from God himself. I have no good apart from you. He realizes that um, these things that he has and that he's received throughout his life um, are things that all ultimately come from God. Um, And that, of course, you know, as we'll see here as we go further on in the psalm, that this mood, this realization that everything that is good for him becomes one of joy, Um, that there is nothing good his, his health, his wealth, everything that David has, all the things that David enjoys ultimately come from God, who is not only the creator of heaven and earth, but who is also the one who rules over David as well. Talk more about what David says there when he says, I have no good apart from you. We, we, we as, as Christians will talk about the things in our life as blessings from God. They are good things from him. Mm-hmm. What what does it mean to have, I mean, how do we say both of those things then, that, that these are blessings, but there's no good apart from God? How does, how does that work? Yeah. Well, I would say that it's also a sense that David realizes that there is people who worship other things in this world who ultimately trust in the things of this world to provide for them their good. Um, I always tell my congregation that we can take anything that God has given to us and create an idol out of it. Um, So whether it's our money, whether it's our family, whether it's our jobs, um, you know, and then we begin to worship them and believe that through those things we are receiving the good that in fact god is the one who is giving to us and that as the lord he is the one who should receive all thanks and praise for those wonderful gifts um Mm -hmm. and, and even those things that we end up worshiping we should ultimately thank god for them as well and then repent of our you know our idolatry um, and know that God has called us to worship him and trust in him. Mm, that's a very helpful, Pastor Stork. I'm, I'm reminded of the way Luther writes in the small catechism concerning the fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread. And he notes that you know God gives daily bread to everybody, mm-hmm. even without our prayers. He gives it to all evil people even. But that as we pray that petition— we ought to to realize the truth that our daily bread does come from God, as as David says that anything good we have only comes from God, and then to give Him thanks, and that's the uniquely Christian thing about Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. is that we recognize the the source of the gift, and you can't really give thanks unless you know the source of the gift, 
and as you said, if you don't know the source of the gift, then you're eventually going to find your way into idolatry in one way or another. Yeah, we we eventually make it up um, from our minds. You know, we decide. You know, this is the thing that is providing me with all of you know the good stuff that I have. Um, and instead of giving thanks to the one outside of ourselves, we either worship again, like I said, money, our job. Ultimately, what we end up worshiping is ourselves. Yeah, yeah, we're we're very good, at, as you said, as, at taking things God has given, good things that God has given, and turning them into the ultimate thing, making them into gods, and and then we run run astray of of where Psalm sixteen would lead us. So as as David continues his prayer in verse thirteen, he brings up the saints, the, the saints in the land. These are the excellent ones. What is what's the move that David makes in verse three? Yeah, well, David seems to begin to speak to those um, as he prays to God. It almost seems like he's also talking to others as well. Of course, he's talking to us. Um, but here he talks about the the saints in the lands. They are the excellent ones in whom I delight. Um, you know, as we talked about the saints, um, we know that the saints in the lands are the ones who believe in Christ, who take refuge in his promises. Um, and David finds delight in them. Um he is over overwhelmed um, by them, and in fact, he he admires them for their commitment to God. Um, mm. And these are people that David knows are and have been redeemed by God Himself. Right, you you see that David is not alone in this trust that he has in the Lord. Mm-hmm. You know, he's taking refuge in the Lord. He recognizes he has no good apart from the Lord. He's not the only one that shares or that has this trust in the Lord. The saints do as well. And and David, it seems, while not making an idol of the saints or the church, he takes comfort and finds strength in having this shared faith with the saints. And I think that's that's something that we still have in the church today. Yeah. Um, we give thanks to God for the saints who are alive, our fellow believers, um, and their examples in the faith and the, the works and the, the words that they share. Um, but we also give thanks to God for the saints who have gone on before us, the saints who are in heaven. Um, the book of Hebrews, the, the writer of Hebrews speaks about that quite a bit. Um, as he describes the, the life of the saints in the Old Testament who went on before us. Um, and so we can give thanks to God for the people who have been wonderful examples, um, faithful examples of um, walking in that faith. Um, and again, it, it's not idolatry um, because ultimately we are thanking God for putting these people into our lives, um, giving them as examples to us and not raising these people up to the same level as God. It's not as if we pray to them for deliverance or ask them to do things for us. But in fact, we go to God for all of those things. But we can take those times when those saints have prayed to God as an example of how we can pray um, or how we can live our lives in the world that we find ourselves in today. Now, as, as David moves into verse 4, it seems that there's a bit of a contrast between the saints in verse 3, the saints in the land, and then those he describes in verse 4. You've got the saints who 
put their trust and find their refuge in the Lord. But then he speaks of those who run after another God in verse four. What does he, what does he say about that in the, the contrast? Yeah. So David goes on, he says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. And of course, you know, if you're, if you're looking at your Bible or if you are um, listening, of course, if you're listening with us, the God there in verse four is a little G. Um, it's not big G as in talking about Yahweh, but those who are running after these small G gods, the gods of our creation, um, the gods of our hands, the gods that we create with our minds, um, as we run after those gods, we will find our lives to become more sorrowful. Um, we will find our lives to become more um, difficult. Instead of having everlasting joys in those gods um, or in the things that they give to us, the things that we receive will be fleeting. Um, instead of having everlasting joy in God as we can in the true God, their joy is there as long as their little G gods are providing them with what they want or with what they need. Um, David then goes on to describe the, these drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Um, so David is going on saying, I won't even worship these gods. I won't even offer a drink offering for them. Um, but there's also one other thing, Pastor Apple, that's really interesting about this text. Um, and that's the word for running after. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean running after, which it does, but it also can potentially mean paying a, a bride price, which basically means that these people who are worshiping the false gods are willing to pay for their bride, for their false god. Um, and it is a, an act that we see, unfortunately, throughout the Old Testament. Um, we see the Israelites um, all over the place, unfortunately, basically rejecting their god, rejecting the bridegroom, and following after other gods, um, and basically telling God, we want nothing to do with you. Give us a divorce. Um, and that's what yeah. is going on here in verse four. Yeah, that, that image of idolatry being adultery against the Lord is a common one, particularly in the prophets. Uh, both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, I, I know, and of course the prophet Hosea, the entire ministry of the prophet Hosea is based on this image that, that the people of Israel have been unfaithful to their true husband. And so to, to see that here in, in verse four, I think is very significant. And just this, you know, this image of like, whether it is running after, you know, sort of chasing after mm -hmm. the God or trying to buy him in some way. In, in either case, I, I think you see one of the key differences between idolatry and the worship of the true God. In, in idolatry, I'm constantly having to give something to the God. I'm having to run after him, to chase him down. He's always just out of reach in, in some way, you know, trying to, he, he promises me things that he never delivers. And, and I'm always having to, to give him things. He makes these demands, but never gives. Mm -hmm. Whereas 
the worship of the true God is the complete opposite. The true God is the one who gives, who, as, as David has said, you know, he's the one who gives good things and there's no good things apart from him. He's the one who is the place of refuge, at, not just for David, but for all the saints. Mm-hmm. And so this, I mean, man, what a, what a beautiful, well, what a, what a stark picture of the dangers of idolatry. And then when you put it in contrast with what true worship looks like, what a beautiful picture of who the true God is. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that as you were talking you know, the the false gods of this world, the only thing that they ha- ultimately have to rely upon is the law. You know, that's the only thing that they can use is, is the law. Um, yeah. You know, you have to do this to make me happy. Um, yeah. You have to do these actions. Um, and if you don't do them, you know, I'm not going to give you what you want or what you need. Yeah. Where... God is a God, not only of law, but ultimately of gospel. That again, he gives us what we don't deserve. Um, He shows grace where the false gods of this world don't show grace. Um, He sacrifices himself um, to give us life where the false gods of this world demand that we sacrifice ourselves to them. Yeah, no, that, that you're exactly right, Pastor Stork, and particularly to make the connection to all that the false gods have is the law, that they can only make demands of us that we must satisfy, and and they never you know lift their fingers to satisfy the demands themselves because they can't. I mean, just the the very this is another verse that finds itself in, in a long list of passages from both the Old and New Testament that remind us of the deceptive nature of idolatry. You know, they, they make these promises that if you, if you chase after me, you'll have the good life. And, and again, I mean, boy, that, that image of, of running after again, how, how often is it, you know, does a, a person think if I chase after money, uh-huh. I, I'm going to have, I'm going to have the good life. If I just have enough, just a, a little bit more money, I'll have the good life or or maybe it's a career or whatever that created thing is. If I just have a little bit more of it, or if I just go to the next step, if I sacrifice myself a little bit more, I'll finally have that good thing. But in reality, David says, no, no, that that only multiplies your sorrows. You know, which again, talk about the contrast between that and the joy that the Lord, the Lord is, especially we're going to see this as the Psalm continues, but man, just that deceptive nature of idolatry it's a it's a good it's a hard verse to read, but it's good that David opens our eyes to this reality of what idolatry really does. Yeah, um, ultimately the the fact that um, the idolatry leads us further and further away from God, um, and ultimately leads idolatry leads us um, away from God, um, especially at the end um, on the last day that you know, the worship of these other gods will ultimately lead us away from him um, into our own destruction. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I really appreciate you this highlighting this verse here because it it's not maybe one of my go-to verses about <laughs> idolatry when I think about, because I, like it's Psalm, Psalm 115 is one of my go-to texts when it comes to idolatry about how, how idols are the work of human hands and they have mouths, but they can't talk, yes. and ears, and can't hear, and, and so forth. And and then the the real kicker of that passage is that those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. But I mean, boy, this this one really adds adds an important element to those other passages about idolatry to see that 
idolatry, again, it can only bring sorrow, e- even when it seems like, I mean, that's just one of the, the great deceptions of, of idolatry and, and Satan who stands behind them, that, you know, they make promises of joy that they just can never fulfill. And David says, no, no, it's only going to multiply your sorrow. Yeah. And that is in complete contrast to what David is going to tell us here a little bit later on in Psalm 16, is the fact that in the Lord, we have joy. That's right. But as we, as we worship these other things, or as the, the, um, these other people are worshiping these idols, all they will end up with in the end is going to be sorrow. Um, and they will just continue to multiply over and over again um, in contrast to the believer um, who has, again, a, a God of grace, a God of mercy, who we can rejoice in. Hmm. The, the matter of where David says, you know, I will not even take their name on my lips reminds me of the promises that are made uh, both at a baptism and then they're repeated at a confirmation when we, we promise that we will, you know, we will renounce the devil and all his works and all his ways. You know, we want absolutely nothing to do with these things, which maybe seems a little, well, that's, that's pretty, it's pretty harsh, Uh but that's, that's what's needed is to just completely stay away from these things lest, I mean, because lest we fall so that we don't think we're so strong that we would never fall. No, we, we renounce these things entirely. And that's what we see David doing here. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the importance of being in the word. That's the importance of, you know, being a part of a congregation, a faithful congregation. That's what is, you know, coming to God's house on a weekly basis. And, you know, being surrounded by fellow believers is the fact that we can always have God's name on our lips. Um, or again, as David's going to describe it here in a little bit, the fact that even while we're asleep, um, our, our minds, our, our bodies are um, rejoicing in God and what he has done for us. Yeah, yeah. It's, and it, I love the, that's a great transition to the rest of the psalm because it's not just that we don't take those names, but we actually make use of the good things that God has given his name upon our lips. And we'll talk more about that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're looking at Psalm 16 with Pastor Tim Stork. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, July 11th. We're studying Psalm 16 with Pastor Tim Stork. He serves at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Chesterfield Township, Michigan. Pastor Stork, prior to the break, we left off in verse 4. David says that he wants nothing to do with any idolatry because those who run after another god, their sorrows only multiply. 
from that, then he goes back into the, the true good things, the joy that is ours in the Lord, the true God. But what does he have to say in, in verses five and six? Yeah, so five and six, he goes on to say, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. As we begin to look at these verses, um, I, I think what David is speaking of here is his whole life. Um, that his whole life is given to him by God. My chosen portion, my cup, and my lot. That everything that David has is, again, as we mentioned back in verse 2, is a gift from God. Um, that everything he has is from the Lord. Um, and the Lord is the one who gives. He is the one who takes away. Um, and so no matter what David has, um, it comes from him. And he reminds us that, you know, in this text, especially in verse five, he divides it up a little bit. Um, at first, the, he says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. And then there's a pause. And then he says, you hold my lot. Um, as he speaks directly to God, the Lord has David's hand or has David's life in his hands. Um, everything that David is belongs to God. I really appreciate you pointing out the transition between the first half of verse five and the second that on, he's talking about the Lord. And then he turns to talking to the Lord that he, he takes these, these theological truths, which are good. And he's using them in prayer about the Lord, but then turns them to prayer to the Lord, that these blessings become opportunities for thanksgivings, which as we were talking earlier about the fourth petition, that that's precisely what the fourth petition invites us to do is to, to give thanks to the Lord as the one who has given these things to us. And, and David in that prayer expresses that trust and that thanksgiving. Talk a little bit about the, the imagery that he uses, particularly the portion, the lot, and into verse six, the lines falling and the inheritance. It, in my mind, I'm seeing property lines. And and I'm thinking, you know, especially about the way the Lord divides the land, say in the book of Joshua mm -hmm. and, and the inheritance language uh, in very physical terms. How's David making use of this imagery here in these verses? Yeah. So when we first read about the, the chosen portion, think about it this way, Pastor Apple. Um, he's talking about the inheritance. Um, the Lord is my, not just his chosen portion, but his inheritance. Um, and, and what is an inheritance? It, it's something that's given to us. It's not something that's earned. It is something that is given to us. Um, and, and that again takes us back to this understanding of who is this God in comparison to the idols that the unbelievers are worshiping. Um, God is giving us himself. He's giving David himself. He is God himself is the inheritance, and all he has um, is given to us freely, or ultimately by the payment of Jesus on the cross. Um, then he goes on, of course, to, to talk about the cup, um, 
which again is a, a wonderful reminder that you know everything that we have comes from God. Um, and the fact that you did mention, you know, the understanding of the lot um, and, and the lions have fallen for me in pleasant places are a way of looking at land, are a way of looking that the God has given us this inheritance, not just as an earthly thing, um, but as a heavenly one as well, um, that he gives us the, the just the right portion for ourselves. Um, you know, there are times where I think we think we deserve more than what the Lord gives to us. Um, but the Lord always knows exactly how much we need or what we need. Um, and that he doesn't give us anything more or anything less. Well, and, and with that, that the, the truth, I think that's behind both these verses and, and what we've read so far is that you know no matter what the earthly gift looks like if we have the lord he is enough mm-hmm. and that i mean that's i think what's going on with with all of david's statements and prayers here is that when i have the lord as my inheritance then like i mean yes the the land that he would have had there in jerusalem that his family would have had and any israelite praying this is great right mm-hmm. but but to have the lord as the true inheritance that's what really matters and, and everything else is, I mean, oh, there's so many passages we could consider, like Jesus in, in Matthew 6, you know, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What is your life? Is it is it just food? Is it just drink? Is it just clothing? Mm-hmm. Or is, is there something more? Is, is it the Lord himself? That's what he wants to give to you. That, that seems to really be the confidence behind David's prayer. Yeah. Um, he knows that having the Lord means having everything that he needs. And again, this is where David's joy comes from um, as we get a little bit further into this is the fact that David knows the things of this world could come and go, but as long as he has the Lord, that is enough. Um, he, he can rejoice in all of the things that you know he's experiencing in his life um, or even in the, the terrible experiences that David has already faced in his life but he can still find joy in God um, because he knows the inter- that eternal inheritance that God has promised him. Hmm. Well, and the language of, of inheritance, I think, is significant because it, you know an inheritance means that there's a particular relationship involved. Not just anybody inherits your stuff when you die. You, you give it to particular people, and I think that's another aspect of that image that we should pick up. Yeah. Um, David, or not David, excuse me, um, Paul talks about that in Galatians. Um, he reminds us about what that relationship looks like between a father and a son and the difference between being a son and being a slave. And Paul reminds us that um, when we become a son by the Holy Spirit, we also become one who inherits what the father has for us. Um and so we have that here with David and the fact that God has made David his son. Um, and that, of course, David then receives that inheritance that God has promised to him. Yeah, that, that passage from Galatians 4 is a, a beautiful one because, it, I mean, it reminds us of how we were made sons of God that inherit. And it is through 
the fact that Jesus has become our brother, the, the Son of God by nature has become our brother in his incarnation and has fulfilled the law in our place so that now we are adopted as sons of God who also inherit everything that that is Jesus. And that, I mean, that's, wow, what a, what a fantastic thing. And, and no, no wonder then that David looking forward to the promised savior has such faith and, and how much more than us looking back to the promised savior and all that he's done and, and also forward to his return mm-hmm. that, that we can confess this too. You know, we have a beautiful inheritance because we have Christ. And, and when we say that, again, we're not just talking about earthly things, but we're talking about a, a heavenly reality that is to come when Christ returns. Yeah. Um, I preached on this text a few weeks ago, um, and one of the things that I brought up to the to the congregation in in the midst of that preaching is the fact that as a son of the Father, the fact that we are all sons, um, inheritors of God, that that inheritance is already ours. Um, we may not have it in its fullness now, but the fact that our names have been written in the Book of Life means that that inheritance is as good as ours, um, that we can already rejoice in the things that God has promised us in the future who and what he gives to us now, um, that we're able yeah, to, the, to rejoice in that. The, and I, I think it's at Ephesians and maybe another place in Paul where he talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit as the down payment or the guarantee yes. of these things that are to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's and so we we can we can rejoice now because we know what is to come and the Lord's given us this down payment through the Holy Spirit in, in word and in sacrament. What a what a glorious thing. We we get to share in the joy of David from Psalm 16. As as David continues his prayer into verse verses 7 and 8, uh, he, he talks about this is maybe a we need to, a little bit of, of help here Pastor Stork. In the night also my heart instructs me. What What's David talking about in, in verses 7 and 8? Yeah, so 7 and 8 are a little bit odd. When you first read through them, it, it's kind of strange. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. That sounds fairly similar. I mean, that sounds fairly understandable. I bless the Lord yeah. who gives me counsel. I, I give thanks to God for, you know, his word that that directs me, that that gives me direction in my life, um, that points me to my Savior. But then he goes on and he says, in the night, also my heart instructs me. Um, and, and when I first looked at this text uh, a while ago, one of the things that struck me was, what does he mean by my heart instructs me? Um, yeah. Because elsewhere in the scriptures, our Lord reminds us, for example, that normally out of the heart comes all sorts of bad stuff, um, you know, and so it's it's kind of difficult to understand. But another word that's used in place of heart is actually the word kidney. Hmm. Um, and, and the word kidney was oftentimes used as the kind of the seed of the feeling that a person has that the Lord actually possessed. Um, and so that even as David is resting in the night, he is still being instructed by the Lord. Now, we got to be careful of what we don't mean. We don't mean that the Lord is coming to David in some type of um, spiritual way that, you know, God is sending 
you know, feelings or thoughts down to David. What's happening here is the fact that as David has studied God's word, um, as he has heard it and meditated on it, he takes that word and makes it his own. And so that even in the night, he is being built up with God's own word. He's being strengthened with it. Yeah, I, I think that's a the helpful way of understanding it. Maybe if we, <laughs> I don't know if it helps to translate it. In the night, also my kidneys instruct me. I, I don't know if that. <laughs> I don't know either. That helps, <laughs> but but I think uh, the way that you explained it, and and particularly keeping it in the context of the psalm, you know, first just the the fact that the first half of verse seven says the Lord is the one who gives me counsel. We should let that inform then the way that we read the second half of the verse. That you know, in the night, my heart or you know what's my inner being, the seat of my, mm-hmm. my emotions, you know, the seat of my being that instructs me. Well, that, that's a, a being, a heart, a kidney that's been shaped by the Lord and his word. And, and again, as David has said previously, you know, the Lord is the one who's his, his refuge, the one who gives all good things, uh, the one who, who alone he will worship and not any false gods. And all that should should inform the way we read that second half of, of verse 7. What about into to verse 8? I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Yeah. Um, David knows that the Lord is a present reality in his life. Um, that he's not just going about his day-to-day life with God in a far-off place. But David wants us to realize that the Lord is the one who is in the midst. He is central to his life. Um, Again, his whole being is wrapped up as being a son of God. Um, Mm. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Um, Usually we talk about it in the other direction, um, that we are at um, God's right hand. But David here speaks from the other direction, that God is the one who is at my right hand. And again, I have nothing to, nothing to be afraid of. Um, mm. I can face the things of this world, and I can face the, the evil of this world, knowing that God is right there before me. Mm. Well, and that, that security and that joy pervades then as David moves forward into to verse 9, that the fact that the Lord's right there at my right hand, he's going to protect me, that gives me both joy and security. Yeah. Um, yeah and for, for a man like this, for a man like David, he finds his confidence um, is great because God is there. And that's ultimately what faith is all about is that that trust and that knowledge and that hope of of God's presence in our lives that he's not just some far off god but that he is he is here with us um, guiding and directing us and you know giving himself to us hmm. and and that and this is where the the psalm really I mean, this is where we're going to start to see Jesus, particularly in verses 10 and 11. We're getting into the verses that, that again, the apostles quote in the book of Acts. Uh, what, what does David pray in, in verses 10 and 11 that just really bring this, this hope, this joy uh, to its completeness? Yeah. So verse 9, my, therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not abandon my soul to, to the depths. Um, or let your Holy One see corruption. 
and you make me to know the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore david's hope david's knowledge is that god will not abandon him um, in fact he won't even let his holy one see corruption um, the fact that those who are in jesus those who are in the christian faith know that our souls will not be abandoned um, to hell they will not be abandoned to to shale um, and ultimately we can see that because of our of what happened to jesus um, as the father forsake forsook jesus on the cross um, by abandoning him there to carry the sins of the world um, to carry all of our infirmities the father let him go he, he abandoned him um, but jesus of course you know before he he takes his last breath he says these wonderful words of of hope and faith um, into your hands i commend my spirit um, in the midst of all of this jesus still knows that his life um, is in his father's hands and though he is about to die jesus knows that he will be raised from the grave and we too as christians walking in that same walking in that faith knowing at times that we cry out my god my god why have you forsaken me we can also the cry out in the midst of that god i know you have me i know you have my life things may seem horrible here but lord i trust you to take me through this and whether that is to death I know, Lord, that you will raise me again on the last day to life. Yeah, yeah the, the hope of the resurrection is what really makes this psalm and, and, and our lives as Christians. That's what really fills us with the hope, the joy, the security, the confidence that we're talking about. These, these verses, verses 9 through 11, and I think Peter quotes from verse 8 as well. Mm -hmm. This last part of Psalm 16 is the part that gets quoted in the book of Acts more than once in reference to the resurrection of Jesus, as particularly striking in Peter's Pentecost sermon when he brings it up in Acts chapter 2 and he quotes from it, that the next thing he, he basically says is, you know, look, David died and he was buried, and, and I'm paraphrasing mm -hmm. here, but and you can go see his tomb right over there. That, I mean, that's essentially what he says. Yeah. You know, we know where his tomb is today. So, so these words in their strictest sense don't apply to David just yet because his body still is in the grave and has has seen corruption has mm -hmm. dust has returned to dust but but Peter goes on and says but David was speaking prophetically here he wasn't just talking about the hope that he has but he was talking about the resurrection of Jesus who did not see corruption the lord raised him from the dead and and it is because of that resurrection of Jesus and the fact then that we are connected to him that's what gives us this hope so that if if this body does die before the lord returns and sees decay i know that christ will raise that dust from the grave put me back together give me the immortal incorruptible body that he's promised and i i will live forever with him and that against that that confidence in the resurrection that really that's what that's what counts that's what really ties this psalm all together 
and gives us this sort of confidence that just can't be taken away. Yeah, this is the thing that God can promise that the idols of the world can't. Um, yeah. he, he can promise us life from death. He can promise us um, an incorruptible body at the last day. He is the one who in his presence at his right hand. And, and verse 11 is kind of the flip side of what David said um, back in verse 8. Because in verse 8, David says, God is at my right hand. And then in verse 11, he says, um, at your right hand, Lord, are pleasures forevermore. That being in your presence, God, is enough. Um, that you will continue to, to pour out these pleasures over and over and over again. Um, you know, I've been studying the book of Revelation with my Bible class on Thursdays. And one of the things that we just talked about recently was Revelation chapter 7. And the fact that the saints there in Revelation 7 are there in the presence of God. And the God and God promises that, you know, they'll no longer be hungry. They'll no longer be thirsty. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Um, but the, here they are in the midst of God, and they can rejoice forever in the th good things that God has given them. Yeah, the other thing that, that I really appreciate you noting that thing about the right hand, you know, he is at my right hand in verse 8, and now I'm at his right hand with pleasures forevermore in verse 11. The other the other thing that strikes me in these verses as well is the, the difference, again, between the the, those who are running after another God in verse 4 versus here in, in verse 10, the Lord's not going to abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one. You know, he's he's actually going to, if I can picture it this way, almost like Psalm 23 in, in, a, in some sense, he's going to chase after me, even if, even if he has to, to chase into the grave to get me, he's going to come and rescue me there. And again, I mean, it's just the, the difference in action, in idolatry, I've got to chase after the other God, mm -hmm. but in, in the, with the true God, he comes and chases after me, even so far as to, to grab me out of my grave and raise me from the dead. And, and again, what a, what a joyful thing. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the picture of the good shepherd. Um, my, my uncle used to raise sheep. And one of the things that, you know, whenever I would read Psalm 23, I was always reminded about the good shepherd. And of course the good shepherd imagery, um, in the gospels as well. And one of the things that never made sense to me was why would a shepherd leave all of his other sheep in the field to go after one? It doesn't make any sense. You know, you don't leave the rest of the flock to go after one little lamb, but that's exactly what God does. Um, he goes after the, you know, the weakest, the most broken um, soul to bring them into the flock, to, to make them a part of, of his family, to make them an inheritor of everything that God the Father has to give us. And that again is the God that we have as Christians in comparison to the gods of this world. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's no wonder then, I mean, coming full circle through this psalm, that David begins, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Here, Here is the one in whom we find refuge, not only in this life, but but for the life of the world to come, that even in death, he provides our refuge. Pastor Stork, with just about two minutes here, help us to, to wrap things up on Psalm 16. So as we've looked through Psalm 16, the, the theme that 
I saw um, as we've studied it this morning is the fact that in God, being God's children, being his, his sons, um, there is one thing that we can have that the rest of the world doesn't, and that is joy, uh, an everlasting joy. Um, I oftentimes use this as a, a, as a greeting or when I'm departing or writing letters, and I always tell folks, you know, rejoice in the Lord always. Um, that no matter what is going on in our world, that no matter what we face or the things that God is preserving us from, we can have joy because God is still in the heavens. His son still has the scars of the cross in his hands. He still gives us the Holy Spirit as the down payment of what he has promised to us. And the fact that none of those things can change even as the world changes around us and that we can have a joy and a hope that is incomparable to any of the things here on earth. And no matter what changes, no matter the people who come in and out of our lives, no matter the leaders that we have in our nation and in the world, no matter what's going on with the economy or anything else, there is one thing that we can always have joy in, and that is the promise of our Lord, who has given his life for us and has promised to give us life immortal. Pastor Tim Stork is pastor at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Chesterfield Township, Michigan, helping us today with Psalm 16. Pastor Stork, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks, Pastor Apple. I really enjoyed it. Psalm 16 has the words of a beautiful hymn, Lord, thee I love with all my heart, running through my mind. Lord, thee I love with all my heart. I pray thee, ne'er from me depart, with tender mercy cheer me. Earth has no pleasure I would share, yea, heaven itself were void and bare, if thou, Lord, wert not near me. And should my heart for sorrow break, my trust in thee can nothing shake. Thou art the portion I have sought, thy precious blood my soul has bought. And that, that first stanza fills us with the confidence of the third. Lord, let at last thine angels come, to Abram's bosom bear me home, that I may die unfearing. And in its narrow chamber keep my body safe in peaceful sleep until thy reappearing. And then from death awaken me, that these mine eyes with joy may see, O Son of God, thy glorious face, my Savior and my fount of grace. Lord Jesus Christ, my prayer attend, my prayer attend, and I will praise thee without end. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.